so this just uh, gives you a small glimpse of one of the projects that we take on through Next Gen Missions. Um, I know, like, I could show you another five minutes of that video, and you would be compelled to do something about it. Okay. Hearing for the very first time that daddies have to choose to put their daughters in prostitution absolutely wrecked me. Okay, but church, I got to tell you that the needs are great all around the world. It's just not Project Rescue. Okay, when I heard of young women, children in Africa, daughters, okay, being circumcised so they can be controlled. Okay, like the, the, in my position, so my name's Eric Hoffman. I'm honored and privileged to be here. I love Pastor Joey and Cicely. I love this church, okay? To me, I told Pastor Joey, I'm like, you don't have to introduce me. Like, this is home for me. Illinois District, I've been in this district for a lot of years now. I serve at the capacity as the National Next Gen uh, Missions Director, and I see things and hear things that I, I didn't even know existed. Okay, so as your children and youth, okay, get behind this project for Project Rescue, just know that they're impacting the lives of women all over the world, okay? That it's just not, you know, there's many things, just to give you a glimpse, there's many things that we could be a part of. Project Rescue is rescuing women from prostitution and trafficking overseas. We partner with Free International here in the U.S. We're getting game plan right now for 2026 because the World Cup is coming to the U.S. And that I, I know just from having conversations that our young, uh, our children, our teenagers, if they're under the age of 16, they're considered high risk to be trafficked here in the U.S. And somebody should do something about that. Why not us? Okay. So this morning, um, I don't apologize because I always travel. I always speak. I always bring passion. Um, I don't apologize when I ask you this question. Will you risk it all? Okay, I think for way too long, we, the church, we've been playing it safe. Okay, we've been confined in church buildings when the entire world is waiting for the light of the gospel to bust outside doors in this building and make a difference in our communities. And I'm thankful for the history here. Uh, Pastor Carlos and Yvonne, thank you so much for just leading well, for showing the nation what a healthy transition looks like. Okay, like you... Like you, you have you have the best with Pastor Joey. Like I need you to know that. And then I'm trying to figure out how Pastor Joey landed uh, Pastor Izzy and Ariel. Like I'm like, dude, that's amazing. And then I'm looking around and I see Edwin and Ben and Sal and Jonathan and Primo, like kids that I've just seen grow up over the years. It's so much fun for me walking into this building and and having an opportunity to throw it down. Okay, like it is. Um, and, and I hear that, and we, we're all burdened with things. Uh, my wife right now is currently back in the kids' area uh, teaching children this morning. We're passionate about this thing uh, called reaching the globe with the gospel. Amen. Uh, let me show you a family picture, because like everyone else, our families grow up. So if you want to put that picture up on the screen for me, this is my crew, um, most of them right now. In front of me is my daughter, Abby. Abby just turned 21. She's a student at Trinity Bible College. She's currently on her first missions trip with the college in Honduras. Um, that was a journey in and of itself. I don't have time to share that with you, but I'm believing God's just going to wreck her. In the center is my son and daughter-in-law, Matt and Taylor. They are full-time kids and youth pastors. They live in Missoula, Montana. Okay, so if you think it gets cold here in Chicago, it has nothing on Missoula. I promise you that. 
Um, and then to your left, um, my wife Liz is in the back. We celebrate 25 years of marriage this year. Um, in front of her is our daughter, Emma. Emma is 16. Uh, she's driven. I have no idea where she gets it from. You'll get, if you knew my wife and I, you'd understand. Uh, she works at Cox Hospital as a junior in high school, 20 hours a week. She wants to do pre-med when she graduates high school because her theory is, is if I can make enough money to put mom and dad in a home, I don't have to take care of them. <laughs> I said, just make the money that's it, that, that, make enough money so you can put us in a nice home. That's all I ask you, okay? Um, and then the next picture, if you would show that, uh, we, we had a journey. We took in a young lady into our family in 2010. Her name's Taylor. Uh, this is, this is, and Taylor has two beautiful baby girls, as you can see. Um, let, let, me just, let me just share this. I felt this as Pastor Joey came up. Like if you're in this room and you're struggling with something and you feel like you're not enough, man, that's a lie from the enemy. Okay, it doesn't really matter what you went through, what you're going through or what you'll go through. Okay, and there's a side, like I want to be the tough guy, Pastor Joey knows me. I'm like, I'm not giving her another shot. Okay, like, <clears throat> so Taylor, we, we um, January 1st, we had an intervention in her life. She was losing everything, including the girls. We moved her back to Illinois, or back to Missouri with us from Illinois. And since then, we get the babies every other week. Okay, so I'm Papa, that's Nella and Nora. And you can see, like, they have me wrapped around their fingers. Okay, like, I can't, they say jump, I say how high. But Taylor's life right now is just, it's a journey. Okay, and uh, let me just say, like, if your life's a journey right now, what better time to risk everything for the king than right now? And my hope this morning is that I share with you a verse of scripture that if we truly were to believe it, believe these words, it would revolutionize radical faith in your life. Okay, this morning I want to talk to you about a specific prayer that was spoken from a prisoner of war. The year was 580 BC. This POW was asked to do something for a city that was on fire and was completely destroyed. Okay, have you ever been told that you were crazy for doing something before? That you shouldn't take a risk? For me, the year was 2004 when I moved my family from Pennsylvania to a small town, East Alton, Illinois. Okay, my family told me I was nuts. Why would you move? My entire family lived within a 10 mile radius of one another. When I say my entire family, I'm talking about my grandparents, my aunts and uncles, both sides, all my cousins, we all lived in that area. No one ever moved away. And then all of a sudden I looked at my grandmother and I said, we're moving to Illinois. They said, you're crazy, it's too big of a risk. No one's gonna be there to help you. I can remember having that conversation, okay? Online, I found an article, okay? And it has to do in moments that you take a risk. In this article, the title of this article was Notes to a Failure, okay? Like everyone wants to read that article, right? But in this article, he highlights six things that we need to understand in order to take a risk. Number one, understand that failure is going to happen. Number two, trust the muse. The muse is that thing you can't kick. It's that voice that you hear in the silence, that thought that brings you continual excitement and fear all at the same time. I now understand the muse in my life is the Holy Spirit. Okay. Number three, be authentic. Four, be of clear mind. Five, fully understand what you're risking. And six, know that you typically only ever get one shot. Now, let me just pause there because what frustrates me is as I travel from city to city, state to state, church to church, I see a lot of churches that understand that risk needs to be a part of who we are, but we don't want to take a risk in such a way to where we only get one shot. We want multiple do-overs in our life. 
And that's not really the way this thing works when it comes to serving the king. Like, we truly only get one shot at this. Okay, Pastor Joey's saying, hey, there's still millions of people that have no idea who Jesus is. Like, we only get one shot. So if we only get one shot, why don't we go all in? And when I look at the scripture of this man, 580 BC, okay, his name is Jeremiah. What's amazing in this portion of scripture, okay, we read some details leading up to it. Details like Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon. The prophets had been prophesying that an enemy was going to come and ravage the city. Nebuchadnezzar just finished his third and final raid on Jerusalem and left it completely destroyed. Jeremiah is in prison because of what he prophesied to Nebuchadnezzar. And while he's in prison, okay, God speaks to him and says, Jeremiah, I'm going to give you an opportunity to make a purchase of some property. Let me read to you the scripture this morning. Jeremiah chapter 32, starting with verse 6. It says, the Lord told me that Hanamel, my uncle Shalom's son, would come to me with a request to buy his field at Anatoth in the territory of Benjamin because I was his nearest relative and had the right to buy it for myself. Then, just as the Lord had said, Hanamel came to me there in the courtyard and asked me to buy the field. Now, let me pause. Remember, everything's destroyed. How many of you would say that's not a risk worth taking? Okay, imagine looking outside the doors of this church and seeing destruction everywhere. And God says, hey, you see that property over there that's completely burned up? I want you to buy it because it's yours. None of us would do that. Amen? But it goes on. It says, so I knew that the Lord had really spoken to me. I bought the field from Hanamel and weighed out the money to him. The price came to 17 pieces of silver. I signed it and sold the deed, had it witnessed and weighed out on the, on the scales. Then I took both copies of the deed of purchase, a sealed copy containing the contract and its conditions and the open copy and gave them to Baruch, the son of Neriah and grandson of Messiah. I gave them to him in the presence of Hanamel and of the witnesses who had signed the deed of purchase and of the people who were sitting in the courtyard. I'm reading this to you because I love scripture because God puts the details in it that he wants us to get a hold of. Do you notice how many people are mentioned in that small portion of scripture? When do you and I typically take a risk? And when we take a risk, how many people do we tell about it? Okay, most of the time, when we take a risk in our lives, we don't tell anybody about it because if we were to fail, nobody would know. Okay, but here in the scripture, God says, Jeremiah, buy the property. Jeremiah calls everyone who's in earshot of him to know what he's doing. But it goes on. It says, before them all, I said to Baruch, the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel has ordered you to take these deeds, both the sealed deed of purchase and the open copy, and to place them in a clay jar so that they may be preserved for years to come. Okay, why do we preserve things? Because sometimes it's just not the time for God to use it. Okay, missions is exactly this thought. That when we sow a seed into missions, you and I, we always want to see immediate results. But sometimes God has a purpose and a plan that we can't see. You see, Jeremiah buries this deed like a seed waiting for harvest. Understand this, that a person who looks for quick results when they are burying something will always become disappointed. 
When you bury a seed, there will always be long stretches of darkness and visibility and silence that separates the planting of the seed from the harvesting of it. It's if God is saying to the church today that when it comes to missions, okay, he's just asking us to bury the seed. Okay, Jeremiah closes this portion of scripture by saying the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, has said that houses, fields, and vineyards will again be bought in this land. As we look across the globe, it's easy for us to look at everything going wrong and say we're not giving. Okay, we want to hold on to it. Okay, we look across and we see murder and riots and destruction and hate and famine, abuse, trafficking and war. But no matter what we see, God still sees buildings and vineyards that will come out of the rubble. Okay, as he calls the church forward, God is looking for you and I to risk everything. And in order for us to risk, we have to recognize, like inside the scripture, that the first thing we can pull out of it is that sometimes God will ask you to do the ridiculous in order to see the fantastic. Okay, think of this. Really, God, you want me to buy that land? Think, put yourself in Jeremiah's position just for a moment. God, that's absolutely berserk. I'm not purchasing that property. And that's not what Jeremiah says. Okay, Jeremiah says, hey, listen, God, you're telling me to do it. I'm going to do it. That's why Pastor Joey's up here. He's talking about Project Rescue. Okay, it's the faith of planting the seed, knowing that God will use your finances to rescue and restore young women who have no other option. Maybe you're here this morning and God's asking you, take a risk. We can't be afraid to try new things. If you're in this room and you never gave to missions before, don't be afraid of trying new things. Take a risk, okay? Remember, the ark was built by an amateur, but the Titanic was built by engineers, okay? If, I'll trust the amateurs every single time if they have God on their side. And here's what's happening. Let me just give you a, a glimpse of what's happening through Next Gen Ministries. Two key ministries, BGMC, you see Buddy out in the hallway and Speed the Light. When I started in 2018 at the national office, it was a combined given BGMC and Speed Light across the nation of about $17 million combined. It was amazing, the generosity that we're seeing in this generation of students. But over the last four years, it's grown. This past year, we were $240,000 shy of 30 mil. Okay, why is this happening? Because God spoke a prophetic word over Generation Z. A prophetic word is when God gives someone who's filled with the Holy Spirit a glimpse into your future or your present to encourage you. August 1st, 2018, if you're in this room and you have a Gen Zer in your house, depending on what you read, Gen Z's between the ages of 11 or 12 up to the age of 27. Okay, and I see it, like I'm looking at the young adults in this church, I'm, I'm like, yep, God, you knew. You knew what you were doing. August 1st, a young lady came to the stage in Houston, Texas, and spoke this prophetic word over Generation Z. Be prepared, change is coming. I am a God of unconventional ways, and you are a generation of unconventional anointing. I say it again, I'm coming back. Old ways no longer work. That's why I've called you. Church, listen up, an unconventional generation is going to change the world. I say this because there's no precedent to an anointing of this capacity. Chains will break in my name, and my name will spread like wildfire. My anointing will pour out like never before. And church, I'm telling you, change is coming for I'm coming soon. Amen. Youth, do not fight the plan that I have for your life because an unconventional generation can only be reached with an unconventional anointing and outpouring of my spirit 
And this is why I called you. So I read that word and it seems absolutely ridiculous to believe that God spoke it over this generation. But what seemed to be ridiculous to Noah is what saved the world. Okay, and I got to tell you, Gen Zers in this room, like if there's ever a moment to where you don't think God can through you, okay, just know, okay, people told Noah it was crazy what he was doing. And I'm watching the example that this generation is leading with, with irrational obedience. And my spirit is challenged to be more like this younger generation, to believe that God can do more. That sometimes God's risk takers may look foolish at first. Faith is accepting the unknown of burying the document. I believe that faith is listening to the Holy Spirit when he tells you to give your paycheck, your birthday money, young people, or your tax return to missions. Is it risky? Is it crazy? Absolutely. Okay, but I believe that sometimes there's no miracle without first being embarrassed. Okay, and sometimes the Holy Spirit's really good at doing that. Okay, like you bought that Starbucks coffee and you haven't given to missions? Okay, you did this, like you're, young people, you're buying J's and you're not giving to speed light. Like the Holy Spirit speaks, he's looking for you and I to listen. You see, Jeremiah understood that he couldn't fix Jerusalem. We can't fix our nation or the globe, but God can fix it. God can do something that none of us can do with our own strength. That's where faith begins. It's understanding that we don't have the power to do so, but if we take a risk and give it to God, he will show people how fantastic he is. Sometimes God will ask you to do something ridiculous in order to see the fantastic. The second thing I pull out of this is this. Just because something is forgotten by man doesn't mean that God is forgotten. Okay. Statistics from joshuaproject.org. 7.76 billion people on the globe right now, of which 3.24 billion of them are labeled unreached or never reached. Do you know those are the only two labels that God cares about? He doesn't care black, white, Okay, Hispanic, he doesn't care rich, poor, or wealthy. He doesn't care Democrat or conservative. Okay, God only cares about reached or unreached. Okay, we make it about things that it was never supposed to be about. God really only cares about reached or unreached. I think that for every one of us in this room who've given our life to Jesus, we all have that moment in in the silence to where we surrender our lives to him, where we tell him that we're gonna do things differently, we're gonna evangelize the globe, and we make him promises that we never follow through on. Okay, every single moment as I speak and individuals give their life to him, they surrender their heart. I think Jesus is up in heaven next to the right hand of the father and he looks at his father and he says, this one's gonna follow through. Okay, because he has so much belief in us that we don't have in ourselves. Okay, we allow the enemy to hit us over the head when we fail. Okay, the enemy knows the impact that you can make across this earth and that's why he's constantly reminding you of the things that you've done wrong. Okay, but when Jesus looks at you, Jesus doesn't see you the way that you see yourself. He sees you the way that he created you to be. The hands and feet of the gospel, how beautiful are the feet of those that bring the good news. We're not all called to be preachers on a platform, but we're all called to be ministers in our communities. See, every buried promise is never forgotten. Every act of obedience is never forgotten by God. Okay, we have to trust him. Trust plays a big part when it comes to planting seed. I remember being seven years of age, going to my great-grandfather's house. Okay, he planted this huge garden every single summer. He gave me one job. Every summer, I was in charge of planting the radishes. 
He would, he would dig out the little trench there and he would hand me the seed packets and I would meticulously put the seed in that trench and cover it, cover it up with soil. I remember after a couple of weeks, I'd go back to my great-grandfather's house and I would run to that spot to where I planted the seed because I wanted to see if the radishes had grown yet. Man, the excitement as a seven-year-old seeing the leaves come out of the soil for the very first time and looking at my great-grandfather and saying, Pap, they're ready! And he'd be like, Eric, it's not ready yet. You have to be patient. Following week, I'd go back and the leaves would be even higher above the soil. Pap, I'm telling you, they're ready now. Eric, they're not ready. Week after week, for about a month and a half, I would go to my great-grandfather's and I would run to his house and I would say, Pap, I'm telling you, they're ready. And finally, I think he just got annoyed with me. And he said, hey, if you think they're ready, then go ahead and pull just one. I remember walking down to that garden and getting that from the very base right above the soil and pulling it out. And I'm looking at all these leaves on top, but on the very bottom, there was nothing but a toothpick. Why? Because it wasn't ready. Was there something wrong with the seed? No. It was me. I chose to pull them out of the ground prematurely, and I didn't trust the process. That in the silence and in the darkness and away from man's activity, it's God who begins to bring it up due to his power and his interaction and not mine. Okay, but I'm holding the seed packet in my hand. I'm seeing this beautiful bunch of red radishes on the picture. And what I was holding in my other hand didn't match what was on the seed packet. Do you know that it doesn't matter if our perception of what we think it should look like doesn't match what we're seeing? Okay, because we're not in charge of bringing it up. It's God that's in control, that does his finest work in the silence and in the darkness and behind the activity of man. He's looking to you and I to take moments in the silence away from man's activity, away from news stations and social networks and TV sets and sporting events, our work schedules, the routine of church. And he's asking you and I if we would just listen and potentially take a risk. Come to understand that when you take a risk, though, typically God will ask you to take another risk. That's faith. He says to Jeremiah, you took a risk, you bought the land. Now I need you to seal, those, seal that deed up because I'm not ready to use it yet. You see, when it comes to missions, what frustrates me about the church is we give our money and immediately we expect God, Shazam! Boom, it happened. That's not the way it works. Okay, and I remember, man, I was in North Dakota traveling down a road that I had no idea where it was going. Pastor Joe, you've been in that state. You know what I'm talking about. Okay, and I was thinking about this prophetic word that God spoke over this generation. Okay, like I, I have it memorized. I don't need to read it. I read it because I never want to miss a detail of it. And I, I remember the Holy Spirit saying, hey, listen, Joshua waited 40 years to walk into the promised land. Will you wait if it takes 40 years to see that word come true? We're just planting seed. I'm looking at this generation. I was in this room Friday night. Man, I challenged a generation to come down the staircase. That what happened in the upper room wasn't confined to the upper room. It was when the, when the Holy Spirit put the church into action. But we have to go down the staircase. Okay, I'm watching a generation that's passionate. Why? Because the Holy Spirit spoke a word over their generation. Maybe it's time for us, the adults of our fellowship and our churches, to get behind a generation. 
the entire world is seeing it. I was watching American Idol. Blake Shelton, this young lady gets up, 16 years of age, she wrote her own song, it's called 15. Okay, like her daddy's playing it on his guitar, she's singing it, I'm crying. I don't cry, Pastor Joe, you know that. Like, I'm crying, I'm like, what's happening to me? Am I just getting soft? Okay, and then all of a sudden, Blake Shelton says this, man, when you have the ability to be a 16-year-old and speak in a way that other 16-year-olds can hear you, there's something special going on. Keep doing that, okay? It's crazy that those that don't even love the Lord see the potential that's in this generation. And God is looking to you and I, okay, to take a risk and get behind him, okay, to do something foolish and see the fantastic, to to not forget, okay, God never forgets a promise. He intends for the entire globe to know who he is. And the third thing we pull out of the scripture is believing in the beginning of the story really does matter. Okay, we have to believe that God is who he says that he is. He's the God of Genesis and he's the God who sent Jesus to the cross. It mattered to Jeremiah because Jeremiah staked his money and his future upon this. Okay, listen to me. The creation versus evolution fight is larger than what we think. What we're facing as a nation right now inside the church, the future of the church centers around this debate. I believe that any era about creation leads to an era about God. I have issues with Christian evolutionists because I believe that the Bible is God's word from the very beginning to the very end. I say it all the time. You can open up book and you can read things that you don't agree with, okay, but you can't change the book that was written to change you. Okay, it doesn't work that way. And people have been trying to do this all throughout history. They've been trying to, to, to make claims against God's word that it simply isn't true. I found this article about Sir Isaac Newton. He had a friend who was an atheist, and that friend did not believe in God, but preferred to take the position that the universe just happened. One day, his friend was visiting, and Newton showed him a model of the solar system that he began to put together. It was the sun, the planets, the moons, they were all in place. The sizes and spheres were in proportion to the planets, and the satellites revolved around the sun at their relative speeds, and a friend, admiring the model, said, this is so intriguing. Who made it? Newton said, nobody. It just happened. Are you kidding me? It just happened? Church, I got to tell you, I never thought I would have. I've been to all 50 states of the United States now. Multiple countries across the globe. Like God's creative handiwork is everywhere for you and I to see. So let me help you this morning with four false facts. False fact number one. Books write themselves without the need of an author. False fact number two. Cars build themselves without the need of a manufacturer. False fact number three, music composes itself into beautiful harmonies without the need of a composer. False fact number four, the whole universe came into being through a process of random chance and beneficial mutations without the need of a designer. We have the most educated people on the planet that tell us that we need authors to have books, manufacturers to have cars, and composers to have music, but this has all happened. I love what G.K. Chesterton, the great English writer, said. He said, It is absurd for the evolutionist to complain that it is unthinkable for an admittedly unthinkable God to make everything out of nothing and then pretend that it's more thinkable that nothing should turn itself into everything. Come on, church. 
our God created the heavens and the earth. That's why it's so important to understand that when we forget about how the story began, we allow for a lack of faith to creep in. Listen to me closely, okay? You lose faith for the impossible when you don't believe that God created the heavens and the earth. I don't believe in a Big Bang Theory. I believe in a Big God Theory. And here's what we saw. Jeremiah is a creationist in prison, and he prays a song that many of you who grew up in church in the 80s and 90s used to sing. I tell people all the time, my mom used to dance up and down the aisle with a tambourine singing this song. And as soon as I share it, you'll know which song I'm talking about. If we truly lived our life, okay, believing that this one man, this POW, his prayer, if we lived our life knowing the truth of this word, it would change the way that we walk out of this door this morning. We see Jeremiah, he's in prison. God's people is in Babylon. He understands however, that God is still on the throne. Jeremiah's in jail. God's people are, are POWs in Babylon. Jerusalem is in ruins, but God is still on the throne. And this is why Jeremiah does the only thing he knew how to do, he prayed. When I imagine this moment, and I'm gonna share with you the scripture. When I imagine this moment, I imagine Jeremiah signs the deed, seals it up, and they escort him back to his prison cell. And as he goes back there immediately, like all of us, he Okay, he, he was human, just like us. He goes back and doubt begins to creep in. He thinks to himself, oh, what did I just do? Okay, I bought that property. Okay, he's looking at the smoke and the fire. I bought that. God, what am I doing? And then all of a sudden, okay, he goes back to the very beginning. And we read in Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 17, he says, I prayed, sovereign Lord, you made the earth and the sky by your great power and might. Nothing it's too difficult for you. Nothing's too difficult for you. So how have we, the church, come to the point to where we live our lives as if there's things that God cannot do? Okay, is it possible that through missions we have forgot what's really going on across our globe? Would you start that video for me? Here's what I see. I see God's people surrounded by a world where the nation of Haiti is struggling from an earthquake. The second 7.0 earthquake in a decade, which consists of 11 million people, of which 90% of them do not know Christ. I see the nation of Indonesia, the world's largest Muslim-dominated dom nation that over the last couple of years has seen a quarter of a million people die in natural disasters, tsunamis, and earthquakes, leaving hundreds of thousands of others homeless, susceptible to all kinds of diseases and hungry. I see a nation like India, where there are more people living below the poverty line than there are people in the United States altogether. I see a world where over half the people are living on less than $2 a day while we sit here, every single one of us, filthy rich compared to the rest of the globe. Furthermore, here in the United States, we spend collectively $3.3 billion yearly on garbage bags while 1.8 billion people are living without improved sanitation practices. I see a world where 790 million people are living without access to clean drinking water. I see a world where our dogs and our cats are eating better than our brothers and sisters in the Sudan. Where last week, last week alone, 50,000 people died of AIDS as we walked into our rapid test centers, take care clinics, and emergency rooms. Last week alone, 100,000 children died of hunger-related diseases 
while we dispose of a third of the food that we purchased. Last week, just last week, 14,000 children died due to waterborne issues, while individually we flushed 1.6 gallons down the drain five times a day. In addition, hundreds of thousands of others were trafficked around the world for human sexual exploitation, and our biggest concern last week was the price of gasoline or whether the stocks would be trending up or down. And on top of all that, thousands upon thousands of our brothers and sisters are imprisoned and persecuted in China, Laos, North Korea, and Saudi Arabia. And in addition to all of this, there's still three billion people who haven't even heard the name of Jesus that's on my lips this morning. I see all this and then I look. I look at the church. I see so few of our churches risked everything for the mission. We have retreated. We have retreated into our nice big buildings where we sit in our cushioned seats and inside the comfortable atmospheres, where we are insulated and isolated from the inner cities and the spiritual lostness of the world, where we've given a tip of our hats to world missions and evangelism as an optional program for the faithful few. While we go on designing endless programs that revolve around us, and when we should be on the front lines for God, we find that most of them are still in the nurseries of our churches drinking spiritual milk. With the mammoth needs of a world without Christ in front of us and the glory of Christ in us, we face two options. We could retreat from this mission into a land of religious correctness and wasted opportunity, or we could risk everything to fulfill the divine purpose for which we've been created. I say, let's risk it all. For the sake of a billion people who haven't heard his name, I say, let's risk it all. For the sake of millions in our country who are headed to a crisis eternity, I say, let's risk it all. For the sake of the lost people you and I know in our families, in our neighborhoods, and in our communities, let's risk it all. For the sake of the hurting, the hungry, the thirsty, the trafficked, and the displaced, let's risk it all. But let me remind you, the author of Hebrews, he's saying to us, tells us very clearly that the Jesus that we say we represent was in the dirty places. He was in the dangerous places. He was in the despised places. That's where he went. Is that the Jesus that we're following? We cannot sit back in comfort. We must go to the need. That is what it means to die to comfort, to die to self, to die in our devotion. We are aliens and strangers living on this earth and we're looking forward to another place, a place that is not our own, one that God promises to prepare for us. And though we may suffer disgraces for the sake of Christ, we look ahead to our reward. I believe that higher the risk, higher the reward. That is why we must go to the dirty. We must go to the despised and we must go to the dangerous because we are convinced that the glory of Christ is worth it. Are we going to die in religion or are we going to risk it all for the one and die in our devotion? This is our mission. Giving our money is easy, but will we give our lives? It's time that the church begins to normalize the impossible and make him known to all. This is why I'm asking you this morning to risk it all. And for some of you in this room this morning, it has to start with your personal life, okay? If God could rebuild buildings and vineyards that were completely destroyed, he can restore and rebuild you. 
There's nothing too difficult for him. There's not one thing that you have done that he cannot forgive because nothing is too difficult for him. If you cheated on your spouse, if you're addicted to porn, if you're angry, depressed, or filled with anxiety, nothing is too difficult for him. I'm telling you, today in this room, God is looking to individuals across this room and he's speaking to your heart and he's saying, hey, you thought that you knew the way that I felt about you, but I'm telling you, there's nothing too difficult for me. The Apostle Paul lays it out. He says it so eloquently. He says, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. So before I ask this church to risk anything at all, I want to ask the individual in the room that you came in here, okay, you had doubt, you misunderstood what God thinks about you, you don't think God can fix you, you don't think God loves you, you don't think God wants you, you're wrong because nothing's too difficult for him. Okay, it doesn't really matter if you're addicted, if you're running, if you're cheating on your spouse, it doesn't matter. Okay, all those things can be fixed because nothing's too difficult for him. Okay, it doesn't matter. Okay, it's hard. Maybe the doctor gave you a report and you didn't want to listen to it. Nothing's too difficult for him. Okay, so let's start with the individual first and foremost. If you're in this room, I'm not really good at doing things in a way to where it's private. Okay, I believe that when you make a declaration, it should be public. Everybody should know about it. Okay? The Apostle Paul says, he uses words of action. Declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart. Action. I'm not going to ask you to repeat a prayer after me. Okay? But if you know, okay, that you need to surrender your life to him, that's the greatest risk of all. That's the first risk we all get to take. Okay, and if you're in this room and you understand that you're a sinner and you want to admit it and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, confess your sins in such a way to where you're surrendering your life, you're giving your life to him. Now, let me tell you, though, there's a difference between salvation and lordship. So many times I travel and I see people all the time that are saved, but not many declare him Lord. Okay, you're like, I punched my ticket. But he's not my Lord. How do I know? Because if he's your Lord, then he goes with you everywhere you go. He watches the things that you watch. He would say the words that you say. Okay, you reflect. You're a direct reflection of who he is. And if that's the type of risk you want to take this morning, when I get to three, I want you to stand to your feet and I want you to say these words. I declare Jesus my Lord. Are you ready? And I'm going to ask you, don't clap. Let, let, let individuals have a moment. Are you ready? Listen, you, you want to get your life straight. You want to surrender your life. You want to declare him the Lord. When I get to three, stand to your feet and say it out loud. I declare Jesus my Lord. Are you ready? One, two, three, go. Stay standing. I love it because there, there's two, two types of people in this room. There's some that's doing it for the very first time and there's some that have this deep conviction that you just want to continue to keep doing it. That's amazing. I think we've lost that conviction in our churches. Okay. The next step I want to ask of this church 
is will you risk it all for this community? You have strategically been placed on Belmont Avenue for such a time as this. Okay, I've driven up and down this road many times before. Okay, there's a reason this church is here and now is the time. Okay, to be the beautiful feet that brings the good news to your community. If you're in this room and you're not already standing and you'd say, Eric, I'll make the commitment this morning. I want to stand because I'm going to risk it all for my community. I'm going to share the good news of Jesus with individuals that I come into contact with daily. If that's you, would you stand to your feet right now? I'm going to risk it all for my community. You see, the process starts when it comes to missions, guys. So many times we come into churches and we want to talk about what God's doing over there. The first place that we need to address is here. Missions becomes alive in our hearts. Okay, but who are we if all we do is give our money and not impact our communities? And I promise you that if you can walk out of these doors and impact the community outside these doors, then impacting the globe will become easy. You'll understand it. Father, we thank you and we give you praise. God, I pray this morning. God, as this church becomes alive with the desire to risk everything to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. God, I pray that you would just allow them to have favor go before them. God, that they can give more to missions this year than what they've ever given before. God, if there's individuals in this room that have never given, God, I pray this morning that you would challenge them with a number that would scare them, that it would be risky. But God, that they would see it through because you're with them, because nothing is too difficult for them. God, I pray for for our children and teenagers in this church as they take on Project Rescue. You heard Pastor Joey, $35,000 as we, the adults in their life, would come beside them and support them in this moment of generosity. God, and I'm believing that greater are the days ahead for Belmont Assembly. God, I thank you for the leadership, for the smooth transition, but God, it's not gonna stop there because you've uniquely placed this church on the street for such a time as this. How do we know? Because nothing is too difficult for you. Father, we thank you and we give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen.